Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Happy Saturday. That's right. Welcome to All The Things. I am Monique Dusan, And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. This is the show where we talk about all things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Woohoo! Yes. And uh, helping us tonight on the show and every night, Bob Bontrager, the one and only. Oh, he's got a hat tonight. All right. There it is. <laughs> And we are actually, we are pre-recording this show. Yes. So we are not live. We are not. For this very special show. But um, when it premieres, people can still engage in the chat. And we will check those messages yes. and, and respond to them. So we'd love to uh, have you add your voice there. Uh, this is your opportunity to support the show. A wonderful way that you can support the show is by liking it, hitting that thumbs up, but even more than that, making a comment or sharing it with a friend. Yes, and tonight's show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, Theology Mom Podcast, and Family 210 Clothing. Woohoo! Yay! And uh, you can check out our family merch at family210.com, and around $10 of each purchase goes to. Help us out in the ministry or our family. If it's CFBU merch, it, it goes, goes to, to the, the ministry. ministry. If it's the other merch, then it goes to our family. Yes, so, yes. It's a great way. I think you got one of our shirts on tonight. I do. It says, truth has no color. Yeah, and I got yes. one on tonight, too. Our CFBU one race, one people, one savior shirt. Yes. I love the blue. I so really, do I. I'm really appreciating the it blue. It is lovely. So um, how's it coming along in Glen Sunshine? We made some progress oh, this week. I did. I am now on chapter six. I had to. I had to listen to chapter three twice, and I'm gonna because it was so good. It was so good. It oh. was really good. Okay. Um, and I'll probably go back and listen to chapter five. But you know, so what's the name of the book again? We mentioned it on last week's show. We said you had done the first uh, three chapters. Yes, it's called Why You Think the Way You Do. And he just really gives a history. Um, so far, a history of what's happened, basically. In Christianity, in the Middle Ages, um, what happened among, you know, pagan nations and things like You're that. You're learning what, a lot. Yeah. What influenced the way we think in 2022? So we looked at Aristotle. So we have to go all we, the way back to ancient times to understand today? You know, is this what you're telling me? Yes, but there is nothing new under the sun. I am like, these people are dealing with the same mess we deal with. We are dealing with right now. I said, look at this. I wish somebody would just step back in time so you can get an answer. Because this is a, this don't make no sense. But well, um, as I always say, there's there's no new heresies. There's just old heresies in spacesuits. There's some ancient equivalent of nearly every problem yeah. that we're dealing with today. I mean, he really he really looked at, which I appreciated, he looked at um, infanticide mm. in the, like, first century church. And I was like, wow, like, abortion was really a thing. Yeah. And even um, maybe the first 300 years after Jesus, like, surgical procedures, like, medical procedures. I'm like, who, who would have thought about this? You know, or looking at the Middle Ages and its influence on 2022, looking at um, governments and economics and, e economics and how all of that plays into it, looking at the church and where the church took a, a principled stand on an issue and where they didn't and how you see the influence of the lack of principle influencing a country or a community and how we see the effects of that even today. Yeah. The book is so good. So what's it called again? Why You Think the Way You Do. Okay, Glenn, Glenn Sunshine. S. Sunshine. All right. Now we're going to be heading out on the road again. We're going to Minneapolis this week. Yeah. And doing some speaking and a private event. And uh, then we're going to be at the Maven Conference. So we want to let all our Southern California friends know that uh, we're going to be at the Maven Conference. You're going to be speaking with Thaddeus Williams yes. at the Maven Conference. It is in Laguna Hills. So if you live in Southern California, uh, you can come to the Maven Conference. We're also going to have a meetup in Irvine on Friday. 
So okay. all of those details are on the website. Just go to events. You can, but you do have to RSVP. So center for biblical unity.com. Yes. That will lead you to our events page. Just yeah. find events, click on it and you'll be able to see exactly what's happening. Where so come we'll hang be. out with us. Yes. Come, come hang out. Yeah. And then as soon as Maven is over, Maven's that Friday and Saturday, yeah. we leave again for Pennsylvania on the Thursday. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. It uh, is. March is nuts. So looking forward to that. Okay. It's the big night. We have a very special guest. I want you to introduce him. Okay, so I am super excited to introduce our guest tonight. Um, I didn't really, when, when you had me listening to his stuff early on, I was like, who is this? I, I didn't get it. But now I have read his book, um, follow his ministry, listen to, you know, podcasts or things that he's on. It is the one, now he don't know that I'm his niece. Oh, he doesn't. I don't think any of his family know that we related. Okay. But I call him Uncle Dr. Vody. Okay. Yes. So we're going to welcome on Dr. Vody Bacham. Hello. 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 <laughs> How are you? Good. How are you? I'm always happy to meet a new niece. Yes. See, that's you are speaking my language already. Thank you so much. We know that you recently got in from Zambia and you have to be exhausted. So thank you for taking the time to sit with us and to have this conversation. Um, let's just start out from the jump. Tell for, for like the one person who might not know you, who was like me like two and a half years ago. Tell us about yourself and like the work that you're doing where you live, because you don't even live here, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm Vody Bacham. I'm originally from Los Angeles. I have been serving in Lusaka, Zambia, for the last um, almost seven years now. Went there to help start the African Christian University, uh, working with the Reformed Baptist churches there in Zambia. I am the husband of one. Bridget and I have been married for 32 years in a row, and we have nine children, and uh, seven of those still at home with us in Lusaka, and three grandchildren. And um, I mean, so that that's me. I'm just a I'm just a preacher um, who loves the Lord and loves preaching the gospel and loves uh, training the the next generation and preparing them to to do the same. He said 32 years in a row. Won't he do it? <laughs> yes, Won't he, he do it? Yes. He yes. Okay, so you grew up in L.A. I also <laughs> grew up in L.A. This, this is why I know. I'm like the, the family. Yes. So what part of L.A. did you grow up? And like, what was L.A. like? Or what was your upbringing like? Yeah. Um, people always ask me that. You know, Los Angeles is one of those cities where, you know, people from miles around will say that they're from Los Angeles and then you probe them and it's like Long Beach or whatever. Right. I'm, that in LA. I'm actually from LA, LA, from South Central LA. And, um, you know, my parents went to, to, to Jefferson High School and um, I lived over in the jungle over near Dorsey High School. And, um, so, yeah, I'm from LA, LA. I was born in the jungle. My mama went to Dorsey High. Yes, yes, yes. Ooh, My niece. Yeah, I told you. People don't believe it. They don't believe it, but it's true. Yeah. My goodness. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Well, I think that what um well, I think you should just keep going and then I'll jump in in the in the story when it's appropriate. Just keep going cuz I know oh, you really been dying oh, to I'm just saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, right. so growing up, um one were you like did your mama raise you in church? Were, was that like part of your your upbringing and and like no. part B of this? I want to say it's like, did, did the streets influence your depiction of God at all? Yeah. So no, I did not grow up in church. Um, my mother had grown up in church, and then she rejected uh, Christianity and actually became a Buddhist. So I was I was raised in a Buddhist home. I was raised. Um, by a single mother. My mother and father uh, got married. She had me when she was a senior in high school, I guess, and they got married because that's what you did, but they didn't stay married. So she uh, 
raised me as a single mother. And um, I, I did not go to church. Um, you know, I was born in 1969, really, you know, coming of age in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, L.A. was it, it was the Wild West back then. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, the, the whole crack epidemic and and everything else that was going on then um so when i got old enough to run into a little trouble um my mother shipped me out and got on a greyhound bus for three three and a half days and went from los angeles to beaufort south carolina where i spent the next year living with her oldest brother who was a retired drill instructor in the marine corps and I, I got out of trouble. That, that would get you out of trouble. Yes. Quick, quick, fast, and in, and a, in a hurry. Yeah. Oh, playing all games. Yes, yes. Wow. I think, um, one, just what an, even, even though I'm sure it was hard, what an awesome opportunity to be able to leave the streets of L.A. Because I was born a little after you. <laughs> <laughs> but much of the streets hadn't changed. You know, the the crack epidemic, I came along right, not at the height of the crack epidemic, but there was still a lot of crack going around in the streets. And, um, you know, that gang life and all of that was still very present there. And trying to navigate that as a young person was extremely difficult. So to be able to go somewhere where you can get guidance. And I don't know if your uncle, was your uncle a Christian? Uh, no, my... my uh... He wasn't. He was just, you know, he was just a good dude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he 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 had that that sort of wholesome, you know, southern upbringing. Yeah. Um, my my family, you know, is from from Texas, and they they were from, you know, West Texas. Uh, so, you know, they they had that wholesome church going upbringing, but nothing overtly or particularly um, Christian about my experience there either. Then what shifted and brought you into a relationship with Jesus? Well, I I went to, to high school in San Antonio and um, I, I played football there and uh, then went off to university and was, was playing football in the university. And um, a guy got wind of the fact that I was uh, part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes which I really wasn't, but he thought I was. So he came to talk to me about starting a Bible study among the, the football team and uh, realized very quickly that I didn't know Jesus from the man in the moon. And uh, so he started sharing the gospel with me and he spent about two and a half weeks just sharing with me because I didn't really get it. You know, I didn't have enough of a foundation to really grasp what he was talking about. Um, And he started with the basics, you know, this is a Bible, you know, you would answer my questions and, um, you know, eventually uh, after a couple of weeks together, he would show me how to find answers to questions myself. And um, it was November 1987 when um, I realized that one day I didn't have any more questions and uh, he was late coming for our, our regular meeting. And um, I just laid down on the floor in the locker room after practice one day. And I just, I remember just praying, Lord, you know, that thing that you did for Steve that he's been telling me you want to do for me. Um, now's good. You know? Mm. Um, and I mean, it was, you know, from then on just uh, growing more and more in my faith Um serving more and more, talking to people about Jesus, you know, um, from the beginning. Um, and I, I, you know, I've been doing the same thing ever since. So there, do you want to ask a follow-up to that? No, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. So when I first met Monique, um, I, I think that one of the things I realized about her very early, because my background is in theology, and I had been um, doing a lot in the realm of theology and apologetics for a couple decades, but 
I assumed about Monique when we when we met. Well, she's a Christian. Uh, we both graduated from Biola. We were both raised in Southern California. I was assuming we had a lot of things in common, and I soon realized that she saw her race in a very different way than I did. And she saw herself as, you know, being black first and, you know, being a Christian was important to her. She was a Christian, but it was, it was not, it, it, being black was very important, very important to her. And I guess I'm just curious as to, um, I know with Monique's journey in rethinking things related to the critical social theories and rethinking her identity and coming from a place of I'm a black Christian to I'm a Christian who happens to be black. I'm wondering if that was ever part of your journey in in your faith. So you know how you have those pictures in your life, those old pictures that can, uh, you know, come back to haunt you and remind you of things that you'd rather forget. Um, I have a picture of me in college. Um, again, I came to faith my first year in college and I have a picture of me a couple of years later um, where I'm wearing a, a shirt with uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, Elijah Muhammad and you know, all this stuff on, on, on my T-shirt um, because I absolutely was in that place where um, I was much more Afrocentric than Christocentric um, at, that, at that point in my life. Um, and it, it did uh, take me a while to kind of recognize that um, and then recognize that, that, it, was an, that it was an issue you know, um, that, that I was putting something ahead of Christ, that I was putting something ahead of my identity in Christ. Um, and that, that was hugely problematic. Um, and it did, it took me a while, um, to recognize that. And then, um, longer still for me to, um, to kind of grow, grow out of that, if you will. Yes, and amen. I, when you were asking the question, all I could hear was that song that says, I'm black and I'm proud. And I was like, that used to be my life. I'm black, y'all. Yes, black, y'all. yes, first. Because um, Monique, your mother raised you to be very proud. Yes, when you when you were telling the story about your shirt, my mother actually gave me a shirt that had Nefertiti on it that said, black woman, no sugar, no cream. So it was just, that was... But that was just the the life. Like you were raised to be proud to be black. There was nothing wrong with it. Um, and so becoming a Christian, that part didn't leave me. You know, now I'm just a person who's black and proud and loves Jesus, <laughs> you know? But how, like, how did you decouple that part of you? Or or did you? Do you find that there was a, was a need to decouple your ethnicity or your racial makeup from your um, identity as a child of God? Yeah, not decouple, but prioritize, mm. right? Um, I, I don't think any of us are, you know, called to decouple that. I, I think that would be an affront, right? Because uh, the God who made us uh, made everything about us and everything about us is important um, in, in the economy of God and brings beauty and, and glory. Um, uh, and so I, I, I absolutely was, was not about decoupling that, but really about prioritizing and recognizing that um, everything about me um, had to be subjected to Christ um, and, and that Christ was indeed Lord over all and, and before um, all in my life. Hmm. That's good. I think that's helpful. Um, because like, honestly, I, I've, I think in the last probably two to three years, yeah, probably three years, 
um, wondering like, well, how does this all fit together? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to put anything before being a child of God, but my, my ethnic background is so important and yeah, trying to, to line it up. So I like how you said that to prioritize, you prioritize it and you're not, you know, you're a child of God first. Yeah. Well, you know, anyone, anyone who doesn't hate mother and father and right. I mean, those are strong words from our Lord. And saying that about, you know, your mother and your father and your sister and your brother, I mean, most assuredly, um, that would also connect to and include your ethnicity and your culture and, and, and everything else, right? Um, it is Christ before all and Christ above all. And what that also means um, because here's the thing, my, my culture is fallen, right? Mm -hmm. Every culture is fallen. And if we're not careful, what we do is we fail to subject those fallen things about our culture or about our family, right, um, to the Lordship of Christ. And, and that's when we see syncretism. And, and, and we can't have that, right? Let God be true and every man a liar, you know? So yeah, we, we have to we have to prioritize. When I think about um, South LA, Monique took me once um, to see the places where she grew up and the homes and and um, the places uh, where she would frequent. We went to the Slauson Swap Meet. Slauson Swap Meet. Swap Meet. The little days. <laughs> Yeah, they, they didn't change the name, call it a super mall. No, it's still a swap meet. <laughs> she yeah. she took me to the place where she got stabbed. She took me to the place where she used to take take the bus. It was all the fun places. Yeah. Who stabbed on this corner. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, I but what struck me was how many churches there were in that area. A lot of very small storefront kinds of churches. And I I asked Monique, um, you know, how effective were these churches when you were growing up? Like what, how did people in the neighborhood think about these churches? And I guess I would love to ask you that question is when you were growing up, what was your impression of all of these kinds of storefront churches? Is that how it was when you were growing up? And, and what was your impression of that as a young man? Yeah, I didn't, didn't even notice them. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Didn't even notice him. And that just what that was not, it was just not even part of my thinking. You know, it just wasn't, it just, I mean, they were, they were there, um, but I, it just wasn't part of my thinking. It wasn't something that I even noticed. Mm -hmm. They, I would say that at least in my experience, there's, they, there weren't a lot of um, interactions with these communities or like the churches and things like that, maybe here and there, I think some churches started like daycares or um, elementary schools and things like that. But by and large, it was just, you know, like homeschool, go to the park. You know, you might be able to play on, on your street if your street was safe enough to play on, but the church didn't, um, I, I would say they didn't really influence the community. Yeah. But there were so many churches mm -hmm. when you took me down there. It was, it was interesting. I think that um, another thing. But you got to remember, for, for me too, there was a, a negative attitude toward the church. So mm. my mother, my mother grew up in the church, like I said, and she rejected that. And um, there, there was a a pretty significant black Buddhist community. I always tell people, you know, there's the movie, uh, uh, the Tina Turner movie. Um, I think What's Love Got to Do With It, this, this particular movie. There's a scene in the movie where Ike beats her up for the last time. And she, you know, fights him back, leaves, goes to her girlfriend's house who used to be a backup singer. And her girlfriend gets her to, you know, kneel down in front of this sort of, you know, box in her house. And uh, it was a Gohanzen and there was a, a Buddha inside. That's how Tina Turner in L.A. around that same time became part of the same Buddhist community that my mother was a part of. And interestingly enough, you know, my mother is, you know, she's 
you know, I got a lot of, you know, uncles and aunties and they in many ways had rejected uh, Christianity as well, but they went in different directions. And so they saw um, Christianity really as, uh, I, I don't know how to put it. They didn't have a lot of respect for Christianity or for Christian ministers. Um, and my mother was looking for something more spiritual and she ended up in, in Buddhism. I had an uncle, for example, who was looking for something more militant. And so he ended up nation of Islam, you know? Um, but, but there was this kind of thing happening within, um, you know, the black community, uh, in many urban settings at that period, there were people who were following Dr. King, there were people who were following Malcolm X, and then there are people who are, you know, going off into other, you know, sorts of movements, depending on what it is that, that they were, that they were looking for. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, I've read over the last couple of years is the, I want to call it like a black exodus from church, especially women leaving um, the black church, especially, but then there you, you get these calls from other prominent black leaders that black people should leave quote unquote white evangelicalism and things like that. How do you, or do you see the, um, not just the the black church, but how do you see the church or leaders in the church speaking into issues of race or um, racism so that we can keep people in the pews? For me, especially black people, I feel like, you know, we see so many churches on each corner in many inner cities, but we're not going there. We're not going to church. We will go to the club. We will go to, you know, do sage and burn sage and things like that. But we aren't necessarily running and flocking to Jesus. And then there's a call among some for us to leave the church entirely. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always going to be that. And like I was talking about before, the church had become such a political entity. Um, and it's interesting in that scenario that I talked about with my mother and, and her siblings and her generation, um, some of them look at the civil rights movement and they say, this is too political. I'm looking for something transcendent. That's my mother. And so she ends up in Buddhism because she didn't want to be a part of this, this, this political movement, you know, um, especially when, you know, there's the whole deep, dark secret that's not as much of a deep, dark secret anymore, you know, about the, the sexual escapades, right, of, of, of these, you know, these religious leaders in the civil rights movement, you know, um, who were terrible philanderers and adulterers. And, you know, it just, it just, it, it wasn't a secret, right? So if you're looking for something, you know, real spiritually, you go in that direction. And then there are other people who were like, you know, enough with this nonviolent stuff. Um, I'm going with the by any means necessary piece. But regardless of what was happening there, it was, we need to address um, these, these issues that are political issues and social issues. And it was not dealing with the ultimate issues in the heart of man. And so now the church becomes just one of many voices mm. uh, that's trying to address socio-political issues instead of being a transcendent voice. And I think we're seeing that again now with the social justice movement, right? Because people are saying, no, 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 we got to fix ABC, XYZ. We got we to gotta fix inequities, right? Mm -hmm. We got to fix you know, racial injustice, you know, so on and so forth. And so the church um, is, is preaching a different message and it's not a transcendent message. The gospel of anti-racism is not a gospel and that's hugely problematic. Uh, goodness, you've, you've sparked a lot of questions. Um, yes, the church 
looking to fix to fix social issues and things like that and switching out the gospel, like all of these things. My question, like if if and I'm just gonna throw it out there because you my uncle and, and I know you got some wisdoms. Um, but where where is the voice of of our leaders? Like I hear your voice. Um, but, and I, and like I said, I hear uncle, uncle Virgil and I hear uncle Daryl when they, um, just thinking podcast, check it out. Um, but I hear them when, when they, you know, say, Hey, look, black liberation theology isn't the way to go, but it's creeping into your church. I hear you when you say there's a fault line and what side of the line you're going to be standing on, but where are the other leaders who are not just calling out like racial stuff but calling out sex stuff calling out abuse calling out abortion abortion, like in all communities like i feel like the church has really just yeah either taken a back seat or and then and then when you do speak out and i don't know if you get this but people write in and be like she she mean (laughs) like why why you gotta say it like that and it's like well would you like me to, you know, pacify you into hell? Like, really, like, how do we have these hard conversations and call other leaders out? Because this is what I'm like. I look I look online on Twitter and I see prominent evangelical leaders, prominent ones that will tell you that the Bible isn't really the Bible. The Bible isn't what you need. Where, can you help me think it through? Like, where are yeah. the people confronting the other leaders who are leading their people into another gospel. Yeah. Well, I'll say a couple of things. Number one, there there are thousands of prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal, right? Um, Unfortunately, many of them don't have very high profiles. And that's due in part because we live in an era where there is an 11th commandment. And the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. And we don't believe the other 10, right? Amen. and so a lot of times people are marginalized. Um, I, you know, I, I caught a lot of heat because I named names in, in fault lines. I wasn't mean, you know, I wasn't castigating people. I didn't call the salvation into question. You know, I, 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 I cited statements and, and comments, right? Um, and, and, and that's problematic for people. Um, but so at first, you know, the first thing I want to say, though, is there are many people out here um, who, who are, who are doing things the right way. The God, God always has a remnant. Um, but a lot of those guys don't have time for social media, right? Mm. Um, they, they're not doing that. Like you mentioned Twitter. Um, I tell people all the time, you know, people ask me, yeah, you got it. You got a Twitter, but I don't ever see you there. And, and I, I, I say, I'm, I'm not that sanctified. I don't know that I can make it, you know? I don't know that I could hold on to my testimony if I was on Twitter every day, you know. Um, and so, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> and so that you know, they're just you know, not everybody has that that temperament, and not everybody, you know, is is in you know all those circles. But they're there. And what's interesting is, I get that from people sometimes. People are like, well. You know, you're just talking about, you know, this and your critical race theory, this and critical race theory, that. And what's interesting is, you know, I wrote a trilogy of books about, you know, biblical manhood, womanhood, marriage, family, um, really calling people to recognize that, you know, the, the gospel it transforms us. And when it transforms us, it transforms the way that we live our lives within not only the community of the church, but the community of our homes. And that a lot of the ills that we're seeing and a lot of the problems that we're seeing um, are really problems that are rooted, you know, right there. Um, And so even, I I still have to say, even in my case, there are people who are saying, you know, well, well, why, why, why are you talking about this? And, and you don't talk about that. Well, I've been talking about all these things, you know, for a, a long time, but people don't always listen. Mm-hmm. I think um, one thing I'm wondering too, because uh, I asked you the question about the church's impact when you were growing up, I guess I'm always also wondering when, when, when Monique first, uh, we were first in dialogue uh, her position was that all cops are racist. 
And we used to really get into it about policing and her experiences with policing in, in South LA. I'm wondering, you know, what your impression is of, of law enforcement was. Did you have a positive impression when you were growing up? Was it mostly negative? Do you, do you, because I know that that's a big conversation for many in the black community and people might automatically think, you know, that they know your position, but I'm not sure it's one that you've talked a lot about in, in a public conversation. And so I guess I'm just, I just want to ask like, you know, uh, how was that for you? What are, you know, where are you at with that? Yeah. It's interesting growing up in, in the, the place that I did in the time that I did, I had a love hate relationship with Popo. Right. Um, I was afraid of and intimidated by the LAPD and, and that was, that was their intention, right? Um, that, that we'd be afraid of them and intimidated by them and, uh, didn't like the police, um, until stuff jumped off in the streets and then I was happy to see them. Right. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of, of that. And I think it's, it's, it's hypocritical to be honest, right? Um, everybody hates the police until you got to dial nine one one, right? Um, and, and so that was that that was my relationship. It was that kind of you know love hate um, relationship, and um, you know I didn't didn't like being you know stopped by the police or questioned by the police um, or whatever. But um, at the same time, man, I recognized that I was living in a war zone, you know. Um, and that they had a part to play in that, you know? So again, it was that love-hate relationship. So, and, and I can... you know, and, and I will add this, it was later in life. And when I was in, when I was in seminary, um, actually it was, it was uh, my, my last year at university. Um, there was a guy who had come back to school. He was a police officer, he was a police sergeant. Um, his name was Paul Labonte. I never, I never forget um, Paul. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. Um, but yeah, he was, he was, you know, back in school and and uh, studying, you know, uh, for for the ministry, and that really had an impact on me. Having a relationship with him um, and having him as a friend and brother, and having conversations with him um, about you know, his life and his work and what it was like. And for the first time, just being able to comprehend what it meant to put on the badge and put on the uniform and have as your goal to just make it home at the end of every day, you know, that really changed um, a lot of things for me. Wow. That's very similar to your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I introduced her to a, a friend of mine who's, very high in LAPD, and um, we're going to have him on the show in a few weeks, actually, to talk about police reform. And um, that just that little connection was enough to get you to kind of open up your mind of like, maybe I don't know so much about this as I thought mm -hmm. I did. And this was a real a real person, you know. Yeah. So it's it's different when you just get your side of it. Yeah. You know, you don't get the other side. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm wondering then at, as after writing fault lines, I know that Monique gets a lot of criticism. She gets a lot of heat where people, people will tell her, and I've just wondered if anyone's ever said something like this to you. Um, they'll say, well, your ministry is just about protecting white people. Your ministry is just about uh, letting white people off the hook for racism. And I'm wondering if you've ever had that criticism and, and, you know, if, what thoughts you have about that? Because I know Monique's got four or five thoughts about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's always really interesting, you know, when people will say, you're just currying favor with white people. Um, you know, you just want to let, you know, white people off the hook. And, and I'm just thinking, like, num two things. Number one, do, do you even know me, right? You, you must not know me. You, you, you must not be aware of my ministry over the last three decades. Um, I, I, yeah, I, letting people off the hook is just not what I'm characterized by, right? Um, you know, I'm the guy 
it's interesting, you know, just a couple of decades ago, you know, I'm the guy who was a pariah because I was arguing against systematic age graded ministries. I was arguing that the way we've created youth ministry and children's ministry and all this stuff was unbiblical, which was absolutely not currying favor with white people in any way or black people or anybody else. Right. I'm the guy who's been advocating for Christians to get their kids out of public school and give them a Christian education. Uh, White folks weren't happy about that. Right. Because 85 percent of, you know, Christians send their kids to government schools. And so I've never tried to curry favor with anybody. And I've been a lightning rod for a long time. And now all of a sudden, I'm going to curry favor with white people. But then here's the second part of the irony, right? All of a sudden, at this point in my life, I'm going to decide I want to curry favor with white people. So I moved to Africa to do it. Yes. that, That dog won't hunt. Mm-hmm. Yes, but for all of the three white people that are, I think I know two of them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I think that another common misconception that people have about Monique is that she's a racism. Oh, oh. I don't know if he's still there. There, there he is. is. Uh, that she's a racism denier, um, and she because she's not for an advocate of critical race theory, well, then she must be a racism denier. I, yeah. I'm wondering if you've, if you've had that accusation against you as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a straw man, right? And it is the classic straw man of critical race theory. Um, people are saying that critical race theory is just um, being honest and accurate about America's racist past. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Critical race theory is an ideology. And, and, and I would argue that critical race theory is a theology, right? It is a perspective about racism, right? Not just the idea of teaching about racism. Um, and the other thing is the reason that people say that is because they've done a bait and switch. So what you do is you change the definition of racism. Literally, the dictionaries have changed the definition of racism over the last decade to where you go from racism being about prejudice towards groups of people, stereotypes and prejudices towards groups of people. We've now redefined racism to where racism is first prejudice plus power. And then racism is a manifestation of white supremacy that creates inequities, right? So on and so forth. So so what we do is we move the goalpost, right? We shift the Overton window and we redefine racism so that people who are talking about the traditional definition of racism as racism are being accused of denying racism because they're not talking about the new definition of racism, which is actually a product of a Marxist critical theory getting its foot in the door, right? Um, and so I, I just don't play that game, you know? I don't do that. I, I, I hold people's feet to the fire, right? And I say, if you're going to make that accusation, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to define your terms, right? It, 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 I may be denying racism depending on how you're defining racism. And you may be denying racism depending on how you're defining racism. So let's define our terms. And what I find is that for the most part, people can't define their terms. Or when you nail them down to their terms, then they can't give you concrete examples of what they're talking about. So for me, I I mean, I just, I don't play that game. Um, I got too much gray in my beard for you to be shaming me, you know, into saying that I'm this when I know that I'm not. Hey. And, and the, the other thing about that is, like, I, I know who I am. And I know that no matter what you think about me, the, the, truth is, the truth is more than likely something worse, right? Like the worst thing that you think about me is not the worst thing about me. That's the worst thing you think about me because you don't know me. If you knew me, you'd know there's worse. And and so I couldn't care less about you mischaracterizing, you know, things about me, right? You you come at me with something that's real, I'll own it. 
but you make stuff up. You know, I got enough stuff to deal with in my life and be sanctified about, um, you know, for me to be worried about stuff that you make it up. You know, I, I just, I don't have time for that. Yes. Oh, goodness. Um, in relation to race and the church, what do you think that the church is doing right? And where do you see us having room to grow? Yeah. Well, you know, I, and even more so in recent years, am really careful about that term, you know, the church. Mm. Uh, because there are churches that that do very well on this issue and a bunch of other issues, and there are churches that do very poorly. The other thing is that not every church is called to the same thing. There are some churches and some Christians. I mean, for example, you know, um, I'll give you an example. We're we're a pro-life family. I mean, we are absolutely a pro-life family. I've been involved in the pro-life movement for decades. Um, You know, we're an adoptive family. I tell people that, you know, we were involved in the pro-life movement for so long that we went from telling people, give your baby life to telling them, give your baby to us, you know? Um, And so we're a pro-life family. We're an adopted family. That's important to us. But we don't believe that everybody is called to that, right? We don't believe that everybody is called to respond to it the same way that we respond to it. And there are other people who are involved in things that are very significant. You know, there are people over there who are, you know, giving themselves and giving their lives to, um, you know, sex trafficking, for example. And when we run into problems as Christians is when we see our thing as the only thing and believe that all Christians um, are to be judged by the standard that we set based on what the Lord has put on our plate, right? And I think what we're doing now is we're, we're doing that about race, right? And we're saying that race is, is everything, it's the only thing, and anybody who, who doesn't have this in the forefront is not a real Christian, you know, is not a serious Christian, um, so on and so forth. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth. And here's one way that I found to make that point to people, even to people who are just up in arms about race and, you know, and racial, you know, justice and, you know, whatever they want to define that as. Here's one thing that I I say, you know, do you realize that there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been? Like, like show enough for real slaves. Slavery is alive and well today. And what I find interesting is that people get on their moral high horse because they want justice for people who've never been slaves because of what happened to their ancestors generations ago. Mm -hmm. And these same people couldn't care less about people who are literally in slavery today. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's good. That's real good. And um, I think that that's something that you would ask me when we first started talking is, why does everybody have to care about race? And for me, it was justice. Why did why is everybody's call have to be to, well, to, she, to social justice? She wanted because. everybody to be just as passionate about justice as she was. And I, I definitely think that God, one of the unique things that God put in your heart, the way that he made you, is that you came out of your mother just caring about justice, being passionate about it. And I think that that's why the enemy hijacked it for so long is that, you know, the enemy had you entrapped in this kind of counterfeit version of justice because that was part of how God made you. And your pretend friends when you were a child. You ain't got to bring my imaginary friends into this. Were orphans. You wanted to run an an adoption. (laughs) agency you know and that was just how god made you and i think that that's what made it such an easy thing for the the devil to kind of lead you into this counterfeit 
So it wasn't that your heart for justice was was bad, but you really thought that Jesus my, was a social worker. Yes, my, I did. My problem was <laughs> I, that I wasn't as passionate about the same issues as you were because Jesus was all about social justice. I know we yes. used to have these conversations. So listen, I, um, I when I was in university, I was, I was at Rice University. I was playing football at Rice University. God calls me to preach. And long story short, I transfer, you know, my, my senior year uh, from Rice University, Houston Baptist University. And um, I went from, you know, being on a football scholarship to having to pay for school. And uh, and so I, you know, I got a, a, a job. Um, by the way, I was married, um, already had a, a, a daughter. Um, and so I had a job. And what did I do? I, I went into to social work. Um, I worked at a group home. And then when I went to seminary, you know, and in Fort Worth, I worked at a, a, a group home, you know, um, and was working in social work at the time. So it, it, that's another thing that it, it, it's so ironic. Number one, people say, you know, I must have grown up privileged. You know, that one, that one makes me chuckle. You know, um, the other one is I, I must have grown up, you know, not in a black you know, community or neighborhood or whatever, that one makes me go beyond chuckling to just write out laughing, you know? And then the other one is, you know, not concerned, you know, about the plight of, 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 you know, black people and whatnot. And so, I mean, I started the black student fellowship at Houston Baptist university. Um, you know, I, I, I my first several jobs um, before I, you know, started working in full-time ministry, um, we're in social work and in group homes, you know, working in minority communities. And so um, it is just not true to say that I'm not concerned about justice and haven't always been concerned about justice or about the plight, um, you know, of, of people who, who, who look like me. Um, it's just that I understand the nature of that plight differently. Um, if nothing happens with the police, if nothing happens, you know, with, you know, whatever affirmative action and set asides and reparations and this, if, if nothing is ever done by anyone, we will dramatically improve the plight of black people if we preach the gospel and apply the gospel in the area of biblical manhood, womanhood, marriage, and family. It will be transformational without the government doing a single thing. I, th I think... You, you used to work in group homes. Yeah, I started in group homes. I yes. know. <laughs> yes. You can relate started, to that. Yes. Yeah. Um, gosh, I have I have just one last question. Um, and this one I think is just uh, something. I, yeah, let me just let me just put it out there. Um, I think what I've been wrestling with with the Lord for a couple of days, maybe a week now is about this about courage and boldness and um looking to like i said earlier like to leaders to to speak out and it's like the lord has given us a platform and we use our voice our vote and our dollar like to to promote those things that are good true and beautiful that that are godly um and yet we also get the letters in from pastors who are like there's no way i could Take We just did a, a, a podcast earlier this week about orange curriculum in children's ministry and how that's, that leads down a road of secular humanism. Um, and, and pastors write in, they're like, I, could, I can't take away the orange curriculum or I can't say this to my congregation. What would your encouragement be to pastors who really do, they, they really want to lead well, but may struggle in the aspect of courage or boldness um, not, and not again, not because they don't want to, to do right. Not because they don't want to, to love the Lord with all their heart and to, you know, disciple others, but there might be a struggle there in regards to that courage aspect. You know, I, I think we all struggle with that. 
um, I think a lot of people assume, for example, that I just like to fight, right? And I just like to go to war over stuff. Um, and I really don't. Um, I, you know, I, I don't like being spoken ill of. Um, I don't like being attacked. I don't like being, you know, I, I don't like being in odds with people. Um, you know, I, I don't get a kick out of that. Um, but at the same time, um, we have to come to a place where we trust the Lord. And I think for me, what happened is, you know, I took some principal stands early um, and ended up getting fired a couple of times. And I survived, you know, and I, I think that had an impact, you know, on me, you know, having that experience where, I mean, what are they going to do? Fire me? Yes, they'll fire me. And I got fired. And, you know, and that's, that's never, you know, a convenient thing to experience. Um, but, but I'm okay. You know, my first publishing, uh, my first publishing contract uh, was with Lifeway. And, I got blacklisted uh, at Lifeway. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, you know, but I took a principled stand um, as an author with Lifeway, and I got blacklisted at Lifeway. Um, I had a three—I had a three-book contract, and I had finished one book, and they basically blacklisted me. And like, you know, your publishing career is over. Um, but you know, the the Lord took care of that, right? Um, the Lord took care of that. And I, I think that um, we, we need to trust that the Lord will take care of us when we take principled stands. And I think we need to encourage uh, one another in that. The other thing is, I think we need um, to be wise, right? Wise as serpents and innocent as doves, you know, um, and there's a way to do this. Um, so, sometimes, um, as my uncle would say, you got to go real slow, like a woodpecker with a headache, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and I, and I think sometimes that's the way we have to approach these things. You know, there's something between being a coward who says nothing and being an idiot who's fighting all the time. Right. And I think, you know, we, we need to find out where on that spectrum, we need to be for for any for any given issue, and not every not every hill is a hill to die on. Wow, that, that's yeah. some good advice. It is not yeah. every hill. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for for making time for us. I know you're so busy. It's just such an honor to be able to finally sit down with you and and I just oh, want to. This was a blast. Okay, oh, this was awesome. <laughs> I love what you guys do. I was so excited, you know, when this opportunity came up. You know, and I just want to encourage you, ladies. You're doing you're doing the Lord's work, you know, and uh, I I'm just I'm 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 proud of you. I'm happy for you. Um, I'm happy to have had this opportunity, and um, yeah, I, I'm I'm happy to to count you among friends and co-laborers, and um, I, I'll I'll go back to back with you in Foxhole any day. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, I am one that that does like a good scrap. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> but thank you so much. Please get some rest. We know yeah. that you're speaking again. Um, I think throughout the weekend. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. God bless. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that was so good. Yeah, I'm a little overwhelmed. I I got through the whole thing. I didn't. I didn't cry. Yeah. Yeah, so I told you. Yes. So, all right, we're going to regroup a little bit. We're going to watch uh, this video from our friends at Impact 360, and then we're going to come up, come back and wrap things up. We'll see you on the other side. Everywhere I looked, everything I read, all the things the world told me about who I was, what I should like, it was all there. The thinking had been done for me. But what if you can't shake the feeling that you are destined to be something else, someone else? Someone other than just popular. 
or unpopular. The smart one. The jock. The Christian. The sinner. In the world today, how does anybody know who? Or what to be? Or what to even know? I found those answers and more. I learned how to think through the superficial problems and transcendent issues before me. And begin to understand what God has revealed and why faith is not blind. What I believe in my heart from my experiences. To know and respond to endless challenges of my faith with love and with confidence. So that I may listen and engage because I know what I believe is true. community where you are transformed in your character as you discover your identity in Christ. And your God-given calling. It's not only who you are, but where you should be. A community where you are cultivated as a leader. Where you will learn how to live a life of service to others as you follow Jesus Christ. The Impact 360 Institute is a community of experiential and holistic learning where you develop confidence in what you have always believed in your heart to be the truth. Then take what you know about God and what you know about yourself and live as an agent of change in your own community. Know Jesus more deeply. Be transformed in your character. Live a life of kingdom influence. Know. Be. Live. Awesome. So thankful for our friends at Impact 360 and the work they're doing with young people to build a biblical worldview. Our friend Elisa Childers was there just this week. Yes, she was. Talking to the students. We were there at the beginning of their school year. Yeah. Now they're starting to get in the wrap up. Um, This week, speaking of Elisa Childers, we did a big super stream. Yes, with Elisa <clears throat> and Natasha. Natasha yeah. Crane. So... Uh, it was looking at kind of a deep dive into the Orange Curriculum, the Orange Conference, and really trying to help start a conversation about Orange and, you know, looking at their and understanding their educational philosophy. They have such significant and powerful influence in so mm-hmm. many churches. And we're just asking some questions to say, um, hey, let's take let's make sure that we understand what their educational philosophy is yes. and how they are educating our children and asking some important and penetrative penetrating questions about yeah. about that philosophy. Yes, yes. And so you can check that out on our YouTube page or on our Facebook pages, either Theology Mom or the Center for Biblical Unity, and get in the conversation. You know, if your church uses orange, there are some serious questions that you should be asking about that curriculum, and especially if your child is sitting under the teaching of orange curriculum. Yeah, and I think that, like I said at the beginning of this, this that stream, I just want to restate, you know, we're providing the documentation. Yeah. We, we had it. We showed things from their website right on the screen. We played videos from them, primary sources, because we want people to go do their own research. Yes. You know, we're not expecting people to take our word. They People need to look into it, make up their own mind. Mm-hmm. We just also, all of us have concerns and we feel like there's just not any conversation that's out there that's happening yeah. about it. So trying to get that going. Yes. And talking about conversations, the Center for Biblical Unity has just launched our next round of book groups where you can join a group and have a conversation on a book that you may be interested in. It's a great way to meet new friends and read a book and discuss it together. Our books for this round are going to be um, George Yancey's new book, which you have read from cover to cover. Yes. Beyond Racial Division. And so we'll be doing a deep dive into that. Our friend Kevin Briggins will be leading that group. So if people want to read Yancey's brand new book, yes, uh, they can do that. Just, I, think it, I don't even think it's released yet. I think it releases um, later next week. Yeah. When our discipleship selection is going to be Natasha Crane's Faithfully, Faithfully Different. different. 
And our friend Alicia Moss is going to be leading that group. She's frequently a chat box moderator on the stream. So you may have seen her name and she's going to do a great job with that group. So if you want to get, uh, get some friends and meet some new friends, check out that group. And then your selection was James Cone. Yes. So tell us why you chose James Cone's A Black Theology of Liberation. Because I don't think people are aware that critical race theory is one ideology or framework that we are interacting with currently in our culture. I don't know that people actually understand that black liberation theology is also a part of this conversation. I don't know that they see it. It doesn't get a lot of, you know, playtime in in the conversation of frameworks and things like that. But while we are looking and seeing critical race theory, we also need to understand how black liberation theology comes into play. And so by reading James Cone, who is a first source, he's the father of black liberation theology, hopefully we'll be able to give people some insight into how this is actually playing out in culture today. Yeah, it's going to be led by our friends, Dr. Joe Miller and his ministry partner, uh, Leroy, Leroy Hill. Hill. All right. So go check those out. You can go to the Center for Biblical Unity dot com and then find the book club, virtual book clubs. It's right there on the homepage. OK, I think that's all for us this week. Next week, we've got another great show for you. We're going to be talking about hope for uh, parents of prodigals. Yes, prodigals. That's that's an interesting word. Yes. Yes. Parents whose children may have deconstructed. Yes, or yes. have um, left the faith or are in the process of leaving the faith. So it's going to be a harder conversation, but we know that there, this is a topic that affects a lot of people. A lot of parents. So and... we're going to talk about it. Yeah, it's going to be a very, very good show. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next week. Good night Bye. and God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.